This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you for another episode of the Insecurities Podcast, my friend. You know, in our promo for the last episode, I noted how much I love when we have regulators on the show, like former SEC Commissioner Troy Paredes. We've got an exciting episode coming up with current SEC Commissioner Jaime Lazariga. But I also love, I really, really love when we have industry guests and in-house folks come on the show because... I think they give us a really valuable perspective on the impact or the implications of the securities regulatory and enforcement topics that we're talking about all the time. Kurt, I think that makes a lot of sense, except for you've left out the third category of guests. We have accountants, but I guess you're not as excited for them as you are both in-house and and regulated folks. We'll deal with that later. I am, Chris. It's it's a spectrum, okay? I'm sort (laughs) of, of, I'm at one end of the spectrum. Amen. But, you know, in that vein... Today, we're fortunate to have on the show Joshua Rivera. He's the general counsel of Blockchain Capital and a member of the board of directors at Blockchain Association. Chris, I know you're going to say a little bit more about Joshua in just a minute. But there's just so much going on in the blockchain industry and the crypto ecosystem more broadly that it's it's really a good time, I think, to have someone like Joshua on the show to give us an industry perspective on the market, on the regulatory front. And so that's what we're going to do today is talk about what I think are some of the the hot topics, maybe some of the sticking points between the regulators and the industry. We're going to talk about things like the state of the digital assets ecosystem. We're going to talk about staking. We're going to talk about (laughs) Chair Gensler's repeated invitations for, for platforms to come in and register. And we're going to talk a little bit about the commission's proposed amendments to the custody rule. So all things that I know folks in the crypto space are thinking about, talking an awful lot about, and we've got an expert to talk about them with us today. So with that, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Joshua? I'd love to. And just for staking reasons here on this episode, we are recording and releasing this at the end of February and early March of 2023. Who knows where the crypto world will be in 60 minutes, in six weeks, but I want to let you know the topics we're talking about today are much more focused on where we are right now. But to share those with us is Joshua. Joshua is the general counsel of Blockchain Capital, where he supports the research team in addressing legal questions around prospective and current portfolio companies. In addition to his role at Blockchain Capital, Joshua was recently elected to the Blockchain Association's Board of Directors. As his resume suggests, Joshua is an expert in the legal and regulatory issues attending various aspects of the crypto industry, including token protocols, DeFi, DAOs, NFTs, and digital assets, commodities, and securities. And he has extensive experience analyzing the blockchain industry's rapidly evolving regulatory landscape. He's a recognized thought leader in the space and speaks frequently on ongoing developments in the industry, which is why, Joshua, we have you with us today. Welcome to the Insecurities Podcast. Thank you, guys. Really good to be here. I I love the name Insecurities. I feel like the industry has a lot of insecurities about what's going on in the securities regulatory space. I'm excited to talk about that. 
I'm also really happy that accountants exist because they're the people that people prefer less than lawyers. And there's not many, right? So the math in my head of which direction that was going, but I think it wasn't the right one. You know, I'm constantly apologizing for being a lawyer to everyone that I meet. Like, you know, I appreciate if you would rather not keep talking to me right now. But accountants are the, like the people who are like, I, I, you know, at least come on. There you go. There you we go. have we have excellent accountants for BCAP. They're they're lovely people, and and I enjoy spending time with them. That's, I mean, my favorite guest already, Kurt, in our 80, 80 or ninety episodes. <laughs> I I completely agree. Accounting love uh, up we, top. We needed somebody to finally, you know, sort of rate the. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So, like I said, there's a lot of sort of big topics we want to talk about today, but. Before we do that, we'd like to hear just a little bit more about blockchain capital. So uh, tell us a little bit about the firm, maybe some of the, the companies or the protocols or the projects that you guys are interested or invested in. Yeah. So blockchain capital, we're a venture capital firm in the space. We have been around for 10 years now, which sometimes we, we talk to new entrepreneurs, they're like, you guys are old. And, and I feel that I feel that like in, in my body, you know, I feel that another, you know, and kind of like in my emotions, it's been a long ride, but it's been fun. I've been with blockchain capital for about five years, which, which again, just feels like 35, you know, like the, the dog years thing for crypto, but, it, but it's been a great, it's been a great time. We, we invest in startups and, you know, protocol teams that are building in specifically in crypto and blockchain space. We're investing out of our sixth and seventh funds. And we have about 2.3 billion assets under management. We've invested that across 170 plus portfolio companies and, wow. and projects. So yeah, we, we have a lot of, we, we've got a lot of experience. We've, we've got a lot of time in the space. You know, I think this is my second down market cycle, but for the firm, it's, it's kind of like our fourth. And so, yeah, so we're, we're, we're not kind of daunted by what's going on in the markets, but it is an interesting time. In terms of what we're invested in, what we're excited about, lots of different things. Right now, we're very we're very interested in in layer two scaling solutions. So we just recently did an investment in Matter Labs. They're creating zk Sync. We're really excited about what they're building. We've we've done some other protocol investments that are helping us like staking and and restaking. So the staking ecosystem is really important to us. We do more than just infrastructure. So we're also interested in kind of the consumer area. So we just did an investment in Spatial Labs. They're merging the crypto blockchain technology with street fashion and design and, you know, consumer products that hold value and are high demand. So we're really excited about, you know, investments like that. We're, we invest in the gaming space. So we recently did a gaming investment in a company called Ekaterina. Katarina is leveraging gaming platforms across universities and different parts of the world to create communities via those gaming platforms and then provide ownership in the, in the value that those communities create using crypto and decentralized entities. So we really invest kind of across all verticals. You know, we've invested in the DeFi blue chips. We invested in the early days in Coinbase and Kraken. And so we go across the spectrum and we just continue to be really excited about what's being built in the space. So that's what, that's what keeps me waking up every morning, not in a state of deep depression is that the entrepreneurs <laughs> that we're seeing enter are really exciting. And, and, you know, we, we really enjoy working with them. Well, Joshua, you know, we talked a little bit up top too about your recent uh, election. Hopefully it wasn't too contested or, or too dirty in terms of getting onto the board of directors of the blockchain association. Talk to us a little bit about the association itself and, and what your role is going to be like on the board. 
Land, landslide win, Chris. It yeah, was, there you go. Was, uh, no, no, Questionable no. number of votes, or we shouldn't go there. We'll, we'll cut no, that. We'll no, cut that. look, it's uh, it's it's a it's a, honestly it's an honor and a privilege. I the, the blockchain association is one of the leading trade associations in the space. I believe they're the leading trade association, but we play nice with the others too. They've been around for a long time, many years. Lots of deep hill experience. So, so understanding how governments work, understanding what is important to policymakers and how to engage with them understanding, you know, how to develop relationships with regulators. That's something that is their bread and butter and was part and parcel to our decision to be members, first of all, but also to engage so directly and specifically. My role at Blockchain Capital over these five years has been multiple, but part of it is to lead our policy and regulatory efforts. And that involves two things. One, it's helping our portfolio companies understand the regulatory landscape and try to forecast how it may shift over time to put them in the best position to feel those changes and, and continue to do the things that they need to do to be successful. And then the second part of that is interfacing with regulators and policymakers to ensure that um, the space is advocated for well, right? And we don't always like to put our portfolio companies in front of regulators because sometimes regulators aren't going to kind of respond to that in what we think is the appropriate way. And so we have the opportunity to kind of provide a voice for them but also a buffer without, you know, putting them on blast before they've kind of fully baked the things that they're creating. So it was a natural fit for, for the BA. And, and what I hope to bring to the BA is, is that venture capital perspective where, you know, we've invested in 170 portfolio companies. We field a thousand plus pitches a year. So even though we, we mostly say no, we see all the good, we see the bad, we see you know, the ugly and the problematic, right? We have a really good perspective on what the industry is doing, which goes beyond the headlines, which if you're not in the industry, that's kind of what you get. All right. Well, let's get into it, Joshua, with all of the news going on this year, right? I, I noted up top a little bit about the time, the time difference. And you said it yourself, kind of that dog years of crypto. A lot has changed. 2023 has been a challenging year. The phrase crypto winter has kind of entered the public lexicon. I don't know if that's just a, a reference to kind of the the chilling of the markets or everyone is a huge Game of Thrones fans and those two Venn diagrams overlap. We can explore that on a different podcast. But talk to us about what really is driving that, you know, down market, as you called it, as it relates to crypto. Yeah, there's multiple things. So we have, have like I said, was probably the, the, the firm's fourth down market cycle. Not surprised that, that crypto is in a down market. It happens usually kind of a couple years out of the start of a bull market. And in terms of what drives it, I think there are kind of natural market cycles in crypto because everything develops so quickly, right? We work in open source systems that people can copy paste, they can like really iterate on innovation rapidly. I think those natural market cycles compress a bit. So people get really excited about a certain trend in the industry and they start to, you know, invest in it and build in it and people start using it. And then, you know, the market around that particular thing maybe realizes that over that a very short period of time, they've overvalued that thing. And not that it doesn't have value, but the value that they have given it is beyond what it is, or maybe, you know, it's, it's too early to give it that, that value. And so, you know, people will remove that value from that, whatever that trend is or that thing. So that, that's kind of naturally what happens in market, in markets, people get excited, will invest, they don't want to lose out. And then they're like, mm, maybe I overvalued this. So I'm going to back out. And, you know, that's how markets assess the value of things. And, and we kind of get to, you know, approach something resembling kind of a better value for markets overall. So that happens at a really compressed time. 
in crypto because it changes so quickly. And so, so, so we were expecting last year that this year was probably going to be a down cycle or kind of the beginning of last year. But, but also what has contributed to that is a number of failures in participants in the crypto ecosystem. And I, I use that language very carefully. I think in general, decentralized systems have not demonstrated significant failures over the last 12 to 18 months. But a number of participants in those de decentralized ecosystems ha have, have presented failures, right? So you think about Celsius and BlockFi and Voyager and FTX and Three Arrows, right? Largely centralized entities providing a service to someone and on the basis of decisions made by those entities kind of got into waters that I think were too deep for, for those management teams. And, you know, we can get into some of that later, but I think, I think that has a lot to do with people losing confidence in some of the service providers in the industry. And I think that that's, you know, appropriate. Anytime you're dealing with, you know, a central entity, it's important to, ha to have an understanding of what service that entity is providing and what are the assumptions on that that entity is basing, you know, their prospects for success on. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good learning moment for the industry, particularly with respect to somebody like F Sam Bingman fried and, and FTX. And so, yeah, we weren't surprised by that as well. The interesting thing about this market downturn is that it coincides with a broader macro downturn. So we haven't seen that before. And so we do expect some, some kind of negative consonants of, of those two kind of down waves. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how those things fit. But we know that markets are cyclical. And as I mentioned at the, at the top, we're really excited about everybody who's building in the space, right? And, you know, down, down market cycles are a great time for builders to put their heads down and build. And so that's, that's what keeps us optimistic. Yes, I mean, I think we want to, you know, kind of put the crystal ball in front of you for a second, right? I mean, there are some signs that, that maybe the market is beginning to rebound a little bit. If we just look at, you know, for example, the price of Ether or the price of Bitcoin compared to where it was three or four months ago, I mean, it's, it's doing much, much better, right? So I don't know if this is a moment or if this is a trend, but I wonder what you are expecting to see in the market. Let's just say in sort of the near term, and, and if you can see into the, the medium term, that would be great. But what are you looking for? Yes. Let me employ my powers of foresight here. No, that's I, right. What, I don't. Tell I don't our listeners when it's going to get better, Joshua. <laughs> yeah. I don't promise anyone the ability to see into the even short-term future because that's the dangerous game. But that mm -hmm. said, look, I mean, you know, yeah, it, like the, the question, is this a dead cat bounce or are we on the verge of pulling out of a market winter or a bear market cycle? My sense is that there is potentially still pain out there in the market. You know, Genesis and DCG are, you know, the, the, there are questions around kind of their, their market positions and, and assets there. That's just, you know, public. I'm really hopeful that that kind of goes away or, you know, in the sense of like, you know, they're, they're, they're able to cover any, any short-term liabilities and like work it out. But I think that there could be others who have exposure to this down market cycle that haven't really come out and that could create additional pain. Even if there is not, right, even if we've kind of experienced the full extent of kind of, you know, the credit crunch that this market has introduced, I do think that capital will be cautious in, in deploying in anything close to kind of, you know, bull market trends. I think we are excited about deploying capital in this market counter-cyclically. 
And I think there are a number of other investors who are also excited about that and, and are capitalized to do that. That said, there's a, a general kind of slowdown in the pace of deals. The, the size of deals, thankfully, is smaller than it was, you know, 12 months ago, I think. That's reflected in the liquid markets, but, but you know, private markets kind of lag behind a few months, but we're, we are seeing that come down. So look, I don't, I, I would be surprised if we were kind of like going to pop back up into, a, into a, a, a much higher market in the near term or even in the medium term. I wouldn't be sad about it, but, but I, think, I think the market needs to kind of still catch its breath and collect itself. And generally, I, I, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing. I, th I think, you know, bear markets are, are actually healthy and they allow for innovation, uh, allow for the market to reset and kind of reassess where value is. Yeah. So it sounds like, Joshua, you may be describing that 81 degree day we had in Washington, D.C. in the middle of February. Now, winter's not over, right? But everybody got a little bit of a, a sunshine and, and, and good times there in, in the short term. Yeah, don't, don't put your winter clothes in the attic. It's 81 <laughs> degrees on, you know, February 22nd. I'll do that. All right, we want to talk about one of the issues that's definitely taking a lot of headlines that I've learned more than I ever probably knew that I would learn about from a, from a crypto perspective, and that's the idea of staking and whether or not staking is a security. The public debate has definitely ratcheted up since the SEC announced an enforcement action against Kraken, in which the SEC charged Kraken for failing to register the offering and sale of their crypto asset staking as a service program. So this is the part where the accountant steps back and leaves it up to the attorneys to do a better job of describing <laughs> this. So Kurt, give us a brief rundown of, of the staking issues and, and what kind of elements are in play here. Yeah, I would say I'm happy to, but really I just lost rock, paper, scissors. Like who was <laughs> going to tell Joshua what, what staking is. So I'm going to do, I'm actually not anything at all. I'm going to basically borrow from an article I read in, in Nerd Wallet, which I think boiled it down pretty well. So generally, staking is the way that certain blockchains verify blocks of transactions. And again, I'm pulling from Nerd Wallet, so this may not be perfect, but here's how they describe it. Blockchains are decentralized, meaning there's no middleman, such as a bank, to validate new activity and make sure it comports with a historic record maintained by computers across the network. Instead, users collate blocks of recent transactions and submit them for inclusion into an immutable historic record. Users whose blocks are accepted get a transaction fee paid in cryptocurrency. Staking is a way of preventing fraud and errors in the process. Users proposing a new block or voting to accept a proposed block put some of their own cryptocurrency on the line. Generally, the more that is at stake, the better a user's chance of earning transaction fee rewards but when a user's proposed block is found to have inaccurate information, they lose some of their stake in a process known as slashing. Okay, so I'm going to do that in sort of my own and fewer words. If you are someone out there who wants to help build a blockchain by participating in the process of verifying blocks of transaction, you can put some skin in the game. And... If you are selected to be one of the verifiers, you could earn a transaction fee in exchange for participating in the process. So Joshua, I'm going to pause and let you correct everything. What, what's your take on that description? What do we get right? What do we get wrong? Yeah, I know. Well, first of all, I appreciate you, you know, passing off the responsibilities to the nerd wallet guys without their consent. That's awesome. But uh, no, they yeah, like they published this, so they 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 had it coming. No, the, the guys are smart, and I think this is yeah generally helpful uh, overview. The the thing that I think would be helpful for the uninitiated is 
to think about what blockchains are. Blockchains are ledgers, right? And, and at its core, the fundamental innovation of a blockchain is, is not like that it's a ledger, right? Like we've had that for, for literally, you know, tens of thousands of years, maybe, you know, probably hundreds of, of, of thousands of years. But the, the innovation is that this is a ledger that doesn't need to be maintained by any one individual or entity, right? We call that an intermediary, right? So we have a ledger that records activity, right? We call it transactions, but in, in the future, that'll be like, you know, any activity, right? That just happened to be recorded as transactions on the ledger. And those recordings of those transactions don't have to go through an intermediary, right? So that the most kind of the closest example of a centralized intermediary to many people is their bank. Bank says, you have this much money. If you pull money out, they go to their ledger, they update the transaction. They say, you have this much money minus the amount of money you pulled out. So in order to go to, to, to find the source of truth for the ledger for your bank, you go to your bank and you say like, wow, how much money do I have? For a, a ledger that doesn't have an intermediary, right? There's no central person you go to. And so what those ledgers require, right? Decentralized ledgers, they require a consensus mechanism. And consensus is basically a way that each node on the, the ledger can verify this is what everybody has and what everybody doesn't have. It's a way of making sure that the ledger that's being kept track of is accurate. And there's different ways to do that. Bitcoin uses proof of work. And, you know, we could talk about on another podcast what that means. But proof of stake is a different way to just make sure that the ledger is accurate and that everyone who participates on the ledger agrees that is what the ledger is. And I think what's important here is that proof of stake allows for incentives for the people who are participating, right, who are raising their hand to help run the ledger, provides them incentives to both make sure that the work that they're putting in, right, the, the ledger, the, the work, the the work of the ledger is to keep an accurate account of all the activity. And someone has to be incentivized to do that work. And in this case, it's validators. And those validators are incentivized to do that work well by receiving a reward. We call it a staking reward for doing that work. But in order to make sure that they don't do it poorly, right, a disincentive for doing something poorly, right, is you lock up some of the assets of that ledger. And if the staker does it poorly, then their assets could get slashed, right? They could lose it. And so that's, that's basically what staking is, is it's contributing assets that you own on a ledger to the work of ensuring that the ledger runs smoothly and getting the benefit of doing that work well. Now, there are technical requirements to staking. And, and so I could like spend money if I wanted to stake to like set up a computer and deploy assets towards staking. Or I can have somebody else do that for me. But that's the kind of basic function of staking. And so to, to jump ahead a bit here, you know, the SEC, as we talked about, has its own view right now that staking itself is a security. In one of his famous Office Hours videos online, SEC Chair Gary Gensler explained, quote, when a company or platform offers you these kinds of returns, whether they call their services lending, earn, rewards, APY, or staking, that relationship should come with the protections of the federal securities law, end quote. Similarly, in the SEC's press release announcing the crack in action we discussed earlier, Gensler was quoted as follows, quote, 
Whether it's through staking as a service, lending, or other means, crypto intermediaries, when offering investment contracts in exchange for investors' tokens, need to provide the proper disclosures and safeguards required by our securities laws. Today's action should make clear to the marketplace that staking as a service providers must register and provide full, fair, and truthful disclosure and investor protection. End quote. Of course, industry advocates, including Coinbase's general counsel Paul Grewal, have been arguing publicly that staking is not a security because it does not meet elements of the famous, Kurt, I even know this one, the Howey test. Joshua, what's your reaction to all that discussion of staking and, and securities? Yeah, so this is squarely in the middle of the issue today. And and so first of all, let's let's think about what Gensler has said on staking. And in, in many ways, I, I think his statement has is a disservice to staking protocols and to the industry and maybe irresponsible because what he's done is he's essentially begged the question on a number of things, right? He's assuming that offering a staking service is offering an investment contract, you know, without any kind of support of that. Now, he, he, he's had a recent settlement in which, you know, the SEC has outlined their case. I think it's important to remember that a settlement is not law. And, and a, a person who settles with the SEC or any other regulator usually does not admit or deny fault. There could be many reasons why a party doesn't want to slug it out for a number of years in court with a regulator. And so, you know, I think it's, I think it's an unfortunate moment or an, an unfortunate platform for Gensler to be able to make sweeping statements about staking. And, and so we're concerned about that, right? Because when you talk about these things, you want to be very precise and you want to understand how these protocols work. And so to say things like, you know, staking as a service categorically offers, is, is an offer of investment contracts, I think is really, is, is really problematic, right? And we should, I think we should, we, we as an industry and regulators should really kind of dig into like, what is the why behind that? And, and are there, are there examples of where that's actually not the case? And I think in general, there are, right? So if you think about staking, and, and Paul Gruel mentioned this in, in his blog post in response to Gensler's statements and the settlement, but he essentially kind of walks through the Howey test and he says, you know, these are the various reasons why the, the prongs of Howey aren't satisfied, right? So Howey test, four prongs. I actually like to say that it's three prongs, but traditionally it's prong one is an investment of money, Prong two is an into a common enterprise. Prong three is an expectation of profit from that, you know, common enterprise investment. And prong four is on the basis of entrepreneurial or managerial efforts of a third party or a promoter. Now, I like to make it three because I think the fourth, the third and fourth prongs are, are really kind of integrated, right? So it's an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit that where that expectation is based on someone else's efforts, because, you know, we can, you know, I can, you know, I can buy a bunch, you know, an entire plot of land that's just going to sit there and I can expect profit, but maybe an orange grove, even Joshua. Yeah. Perhaps an orange get grove. real creative. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, if I, if, if that expectation isn't tied to what someone else is doing who promoted that purchase to me, you know, then, then it doesn't fit Howie. I think what, I think Gruel makes a really, a really salient point on the first prong where he says, 
look, what you're doing with staking is you're not giving up one asset in exchange for an interest, right? Or a, a set of rights in something, right? So, you know, his, his point is in an investment contract, usually you're giving someone money and in exchange for money, they're giving you this like promise, right? Or this like statement of things that will be carried out, right? And on the basis of those things that will be carried out, you can expect profit from the investment that you made. You know, a return. In staking, you're not really doing that. You're taking digital assets that you own. You're locking them up in a smart contract. And again, like I could do that on my computer, right? Or I could have someone else. I could do it on someone else's infrastructure. And you are going to get that, that, you know, that, that asset back. Now, the, the benefit of staking is that you also get to participate in what we call the, the, the inflation of the network. And that inflation is by design, right? That inflation is what powers the growth of the network. But that is the protocol thing. That's something that's been designed into the protocol itself. So you think Ethereum, their proof of stake protocol is designed to provide staking rewards, right? That's not, the, that reward doesn't come on the basis of anything that, you know, a staking service provider would do or not choose to do. You know, common enterprises is, is, is a weird one. I don't, I don't know if it's going to be super helpful to go into that, but anybody who wants to talk, talk about that can like see me after. If that's something you're allowed to say on, on podcasts, I don't sure. know. Sure. Yeah. But well, you've just promised us another episode. We're going to have sure. a, an AMA with uh, <laughs> yeah, Joshua yeah, Rivera. Yeah. More cool what you wish for then. You might be like, you're not coming back. But, you know, I think, I think then when you go to the, the third and fourth prongs, right? Expectation of profit on the basis of the efforts of others, right? Again, your expectation of profit is not because anyone is doing something enterprising or like particularly managerially interesting. You're just taking advantage of infrastructure that someone else has, has built, right? That functions in accordance with the overall protocol. Now it's infrastructure that you could build yourself, but you don't necessarily want to do that if you don't want to put the time and the money and the effort into it. But there's no ongoing kind of managerial efforts in, in kind of taking hold of that protocol. And, and I think it's also interesting, this is a, a bit more of an esoteric point, but really what you're doing in staking is making sure that you aren't constantly diluted, right? Because again, these networks are inflationary networks. And so when you stake, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're making sure that as the network inflates, you are kind of keeping lockstep with that inflation. If you don't stake, if you just choose to like hold your assets, then, you know, over time, the value vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the amount of assets on the network or the size of your assets vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the number of assets on the network um, diminishes, right? And so if you're looking at everything kind of in, in a relativistic point of view, you're not really expecting profit from that. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. I think the, that fourth prong, if we want to break it out into four, about the efforts of others, I feel like Chair Gensler is trying to sort of hit back at, at some of these comments from the industry on that, you know, he just gave an, an interview with New York Magazine last week where he basically said, you know, for so many of these companies, you can find a website and there will be the bios of a group of entrepreneurs who, you know, built it. And so like, there's your, there's your group, there's the effort of others. So, I mean, I don't know what your reaction to that is, but like we said, this, these things are playing out in real time. So I don't know how that strikes you. Yeah, I just, I think, again, it's really, um, it, it kind of, it belies a lack of effort, I think, on the regulator's part, right? And, and I, I try to say that with as much respect as possible. You know, I, Gensler's a really smart 
person. I think he thought a lot about digital assets and digital asset ecosystems. But I don't know if it serves him to look for ways that, you know, his hypothesis is disproved. I just don't know if it serves him for, to, you know, to do that. And so I think when you, when you point to something as kind of trite as like, hey, like there's a team, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a page on the, on the protocol website that, you know, shows the team, you know, like, cool, I don't, you know, I don't know if we really met the evidentiary standard that we need to be talking about here to, yeah. to date that the success of this protocol is dependent on the, the ongoing current efforts of, a, you know, a five or six people whose pictures are on a website. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's maybe indicative of, you know, maybe it's Chair Gensler's, maybe it's the, the commission staff more broadly, but sometimes trying to fit square pegs in round holes, right? Because they, they're trying to operate within an existing framework, which, which actually kind of brings us nicely to the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is the repeated invitation for, you know, particularly exchanges to come in and register. Just come uh, on in, everybody. Just, just come, come on, on, in, on right? down. It's fine. <laughs> Doors open. Registration yeah. forms are right here. It's just it's just an online form. You know, 15 minutes or less could save you $15 million in litigation fees against us. Wow. Them. I think, Joshua, you've got yeah. a good good marketing arm there. Know, just, take a look at that. Geico, they <laughs> come after me. If they <laughs> <laughs> I think that's been a, a pretty common experience so far. No, I mean, so look, th this conversation kind of kicked off last fall. Chair Gensler gave testimony before the Senate Banking Committee, and he said, quote, Given that most crypto tokens are securities, it follows that many crypto intermediaries, whether they call themselves centralized or decentralized, are transacting in securities and have to register with the SEC in some capacity, end quote. And since then, we've heard time and again, come in and register, come in and register. I mean, Chris, we've talked about it here on the show after SEC Speaks last fall, after mm -hmm. the Securities Enforcement Forum. Everyone, I, I think, even if they were in a capacity that has nothing to do with crypto, when they got on stage, managed to slide in, come in and register. That's right. So it's something that we're talking a lot about. But I guess, you know, Joshua, from from your perspective, you know, what is what is the issue here? What's what's the concern? It's just it's just a form, like you said, right? Yeah, I think it's extremely problematic uh, because for a number of reasons, for Gensler to say, hey, you just need to come in and register assumes a number of things, right? First, it assumes that people haven't been trying to come in and register already. And, and as a matter of fact, that, that is the case. So, you know, we have a number of protocol teams, portfolio companies that in at one time or another have, you know, reached out to the SEC or other regulators kind of in, in search of how do we move forward under an existing regulatory framework? And that in, you know, categorically has, has not gone well. So we've got a por portfolio company who's literally been trying to get a digital asset broker dealer license, a custodial digital asset broker dealer license for almost six years. And that has still not been granted. And so when you have teams that have actually tried to go in and register, like the, we, we want to register with, you know, FINRA and, and, and the SEC and have not been able to, if you continue to tell people just come in and register, it starts to ring hollow. The other, the other issue is, again, you know, with, with that quote that you read from, from Gensler, it's, we're assuming the conclusion to be true without, you know, assessing the, the, the validity of the, you know, the various premises that make up that conclusion. 
And so, you know, just, just making statements like, you know, because most of these things are securities, right? Like we just, we haven't actually assessed, you know, in, in most of these cases, the extent to which the securities laws are actually appropriate, appropriate regulatory frameworks for these digital assets. But in the case where firms have been successful, right? So putting those things aside, right? In the case where firms have actually been successful in coming in and registering, it's been a death sentence for those projects. And so the two examples that I'll put forward, one is Blockstack, and the other is a company called Props, a protocol called Props. Now, both of these protocols did reggae plus offerings. They wanted to be super entrepreneurial and like really engage with regulators, do the right thing, right? We're going to go in and register exactly what Gensler has asked for. And in both cases, they did. And, and the SEC, you know, was, this was before Gensler's time, but they were receptive and they allowed them to qualify their offerings of digital assets under Reg A+. And, you know, at first it was like, oh, great. The SEC is finally allowing people to come and register. They're approving something, right? So that's at least progress. But really it, it, it became a, a case of this is the wrong remedy for the problem that we have here. And the reason for that is what Blockstack created and what Props created is a platform for the use of digital assets. But what a Reg A plus or an S1, right, like that disclosure regime is built around disclosing information for companies that are, you know, have business lines that earn profit, right? So you want to disclose about the company, its balance sheet, you know, assets, liabilities, revenue, you know, all of the different things that make up that company. Well, it turned out that in Blockstack and Prof's case, like information and disclosure about the company itself didn't actually help investors understand the value of the digital assets that were qualified, right? So you have a fundamental incongruence between the disclosure regime and the asset that's being qualified in those offerings. And so what it, what it meant was if I bought stacks, those are the, the digital assets, the block stack that block site qualified or props, the disclosure was kind of useless to me. It was meaningless. The second thing it, it, that also happened was I could not trade those assets on any, you know, existing trading infrastructure, right? Because qualified securities need to trade on a national exchange and national exchanges do not trade digital assets. So if, even if I laid a hold of those assets in a, you know, qualified way, a registered way, I wasn't able to appreciate the benefits of qualifying or registering because there's no market for them under the existing frameworks. And then finally, the last kind of, you know, the, 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 the death knell of, of the death sentence was that because of the rigid rules around the transfer of assets, right? These assets are supposed to be used on a blockchain, right? Yeah. In Blockstack's case, they were assets that you could use to activate on-chain applications and make them do certain things for you. But that, but but qualified assets have to trade via an interme inter intermediary, right? They have to go through a transfer agent, broker-dealer, clearinghouse, right? And so if really what you're trying to do is utilize these assets on-chain, but you have to go through non-on-chain intermediaries, it emaciates the purpose for which these assets were created. And so in both cases, those companies are largely irrelevant, which is really sad. Blockstack was doing some really interesting things. And Props had a really interesting social platform. Props had to shut down. They just couldn't innovate, could not iterate, right? Because they existed under this incongruent pre-existing regulatory framework. So those are some pretty stark examples of, of how this can go, you know, horribly wrong, maybe unfairly. But just thinking about the way the framework 
exists. I, I mean, is there a viable path forward for, you know, whether you're an intermediary or an issuer, is there a way to do this? Yeah, I think, I think there is a path forward and, you know, p- part of my role at, at, at BCAP and, and part of my role as a, as a, a blockchain association director is to interface with policymakers and regulators to create frameworks that actually fit the space. And I think in the first instance, you know, actors who are really trying to work within the existing regulatory frameworks and actually come in and register, like, let's, let's find a way to actually, you know, realize the potential there, which I just don't think the SEC has done. I don't, I don't know if they can point to any wins in that category, and, and we can point to plenty of losses, as, as I've just mentioned. But I, I, you know, I think there are, there are reasonable ways that you could empower, you know, digital asset custodians to become digital asset broker dealers, that you could empower exchanges who want to engage with digital asset securities specifically, you could empower them to do that. And you could have them have a platform that exists under a regulatory framework, you know, for example, maybe that the ATS rules, and you could, you could streamline the ATS rules that allow for them to provide that service better. So I, I, I think you, we could kind of practically, like there are in, in particular centralized service providers like custodians and exchanges that want to work towards finding something workable. In the case of this most recent settlement with Kraken, Hester Peirce had a really great dissent where she said, look, setting aside the merits of this case, let's say that, you know, there, you know, that what was happening here was an issuance of unregistered securities in the form of an investment contract. There's no path that a staking as a service provider could have taken to go to the SEC and say, like, we want to issue this product, help us register it, help us issue it in a way that's compliant with the security laws. There's just no path. There's no available path. And so let's let's actually create those paths, but in a transparent way, like not in a hand wavy, just come in and register. We'll have a great conversation. There'll be tea and cookies and we'll all go on our merry way. I just don't think that's going to happen because, you know, prior behavior is the best indicator of future behavior. So we just haven't seen it yet. I'm interested in my next visit down to the SEC. I'm going to be looking for those tea and cookies. Yeah. Joshua. <laughs> right I, next to those registration forms, right? That is the well, I mean, we, we joke a bit, but, you know, even with the act of registering, right, there are going to be some some ripple effects, some some consequences that people may not foresee. And you talked a little bit about, you know, kind of the, the bottleneck that's happening in terms of those that, that do register and some of the implications. You know, what are the other maybe, you know, unintended consequences you see in, in terms of asking these protocols and these solutions to come in and register? Yeah. So I the, the other thing is registration. I forgot to mention registration is extremely expensive. And I laugh because, you know, Reg A plus the intent was like, hey, we're going to make a less expensive way to register. And so like if you spend $5 million on registering for public offering, you may spend like $4 million on a qualified offering for a Reg A plus. Like you're just going to go through almost the same amount of kind of accounting and legal expenses that it would take. So you know, part of the problem is you're not providing a way for particularly nimble, really fast moving entrepreneurs to lay hold of something that will allow them to continue to iterate in the space that they're building, right? You're, you're effectively going to grind industry innovation to a halt by requiring people to, quote, come in and register. And then even if there were, even if... Uh, 
the actors in the industry were to all come in and register. I don't think the SEC has the capacity to field the volume of registrations that that there would be. So you'd have this crazy backlog. There'd you know still be a lot of uncertainty. That's just not how innovation works, right? Like we're we're not doing the same things. And you know may, may, maybe the discussion for another time. But philosophically, I think part of the problem is that Gensler does not recognize that there could be genuine decentralization in these projects, right? He doesn't recognize that what people are trying to build, what they intend to build, and what they are, I think, in in many cases, succeeding in building are actually decentralized and disintermediated systems. If that is what we are actually building, then regulatory frameworks that were created around an intermediary structure for, you know, the exchange of value, those aren't going to be congruent with ecosystems that don't have that intermediary structure. And so, you know, a a more, a less disingenuous thing to do would be to actually engage with industry and say, like, tell me how, you know, these decentralized systems require new types of frameworks. All right. Moving on from our discussion of this kind of colloquialism of come on in and register. You know, the SEC has moved forward some proposed changes that impact the crypto industry, especially as it relates to the custody rule as it focuses to enhance protections of customer assets managed by registered investment advisors. The proposed rules themselves would broaden the application of the current investment advisor custody rule beyond client funds and securities to include any client assets in an investment advisor's possession or when an investment advisor has authority to obtain possession of client assets. Like the current rule, the proposed rule would entrust safekeeping of client assets to qualified custodians, which is generally a federal or state chartered bank or savings association, trust company, registered broker dealer, registered futures commission merchant, or a foreign financial institution. But in announcing the rule, Chair Gensler also noted that, quote, through this expanded custody rule, investors working with advisors would receive the time-tested protections that they deserve for all of their assets, including crypto assets, consistent with what Congress envisioned, end quote. And the emphasis there is added by me as we focus on crypto assets today. So, Joshua, I'm interested in your reaction to the proposed changes of the custody rule and what the implications might be for the crypto industry. Yeah, so I, I think at the outset, look, the custody rule is due to be updated. So, you know, no surprises there that the custody rule was updated. That said, I I think there, there are a number of severe problems with, with the rule as proposed. The, the first is that it, it really does call into question the status of state chartered trust companies as potential qualified custodians. I think there's always been a level of skepticism from the SEC. You know, they have, they, they, they've always been very reticent to acknowledge that state chartered trust companies can satisfy the qualified custodian, op, you know, rule and obligation, even though it feels like that's probably what the, you know, the regulation says per its plain language. But in this case, what they've done is they, they've introduced, you know, a number of additional rules and regulations that may be difficult for state tar- chartered trust companies to, to lay hold of in, in terms of satisfying that. So, for example, you know, the insolvency proceedings for, for banks are, are extremely clear. You know, we know exactly how those work out. They're different for state chartered trust companies, not just as a collective whole, but state by state, right? So different states will have different kind of rules around proceedings for bankruptcy for trust companies. And so I think part of what this rule potentially does is limit the number of custodians that are available just by merit of the fact that 
look, like banks aren't going to custody digital assets. And, and I think banks ought not custody digital assets. Most of them. Why? Not because I dislike banks, but because they do not have the technical capability to custody digital assets. They can custody paper assets. It's pretty easy, right? Buy a vault. You throw your paper in the vault, demonstrate possession. You put a padlock on the vault. You know, you set the code, you know, you give a few control people the code and you demonstrate control, right? Like the, the, the custody kind of framework that we have is built around this idea of ledger-based, you know, you know, kind of paper ledger-based assets. And that doesn't require technical prowess, right? It doesn't require expertise. I mean, some expertise, you have to have like governance controls and, you know, you know, contingencies for, for other security breaches and things like that. But in general, when you are custodying digital assets, there is a lot more that you have to understand. And so the entities that have built this expertise across the industry are not banks because they, except in the case of Anchorage, but, you know, the rest, they, they, they haven't, you know, we haven't had a proliferation of nationally chartered banks in recent, in recent decades, right? So that is a problem, right? We're talking about fewer custodians and, you know, the question of, of whether, you know, entities that we expect could be custodians would be. The second problem is, this rule requires that the platforms that trade crypto also be qualified custodians to the extent that registered investment advisors, so like blockchain capital, utilize those trading platforms to exchange assets, right? So let's say, let, let's, let's pretend that we could hold all of our digital assets at a qualified custodian. The moment that we wanted to liquidate those assets, right, or exchange them, right, was just, is our business, right? Our business, take money, invest it, and then liquidate those investments for the benefit of our LPs. The moment we wanted to do that, we would have to transfer those assets to another platform that as of yet would, would not be a qualified custodian. And in that moment, right, Gensler and the rule are very clear that that is a violation of the rule. So effectively, like, what are we going to do here? We're just not gonna buy assets or if we hold them we're not gonna sell them what kind of sense does that make there is there's not a lot of kind of positive policy outcomes coming from that the third thing that is particularly concerning is that this proposed rule emaciates self-custody now look my preference as the general counsel of blockchain capital is that we don't self-custody anything however because the space moves so quickly and because we need to be at the cutting edge of crypto there are things that we invest in and there are assets that we eventually hold for which there are no technical platforms capable of custody, right? So we love our digital, you know, we love our, our custodians. We use them as much as we can. There are instances where they don't have the engineering capability to support the new asset. And that means they need time to support that asset. But in the meantime, we need to be able to custody that asset in-house. Now, I would argue that we have Except for custodians in the space, we have the, the next highest qualification to custody digital assets. Why? Because we've been doing it for 10 years, right? We know the state of the art. We know the industry best practices. We are intent on keeping our client funds safe. And actually, I would argue that the safest place for our digital assets, you know, if it's between blockchain capital or between, you know, Bank of America, I would say it's blockchain capital because Bank of America hasn't put in the research and the technical development that they need to be able to custody these types of assets. And so, you know, that those are kind of the main concerns. There's there's a number of other concerns that that popped up as well. There's a contracting requirement that 
qualified custodians agree with their clients that they will indemnify them for for negligence, which is an extremely, you know, draconian standard. We 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 get gross negligence. But negligence is is just something that is not commercially feasible, I think. And then there's also an insurance requirement that assets be insured against loss and and sounds like it would be comprehensive loss. So those are the the details of of the of the rule that are problematic and there's more. Yeah, I mean it it's interesting because obviously there are there are issues with this rule certainly from from your seat, right? From the perspective of someone who's in the crypto industry. You know, unlike a lot of other rules or proposals or amendments that we've seen, you know, since Chair Gensler has been doing his job, this one actually went through 4-1. Yeah. You know, not straight along party lines. Commissioner Ueda voted for these amendments. Commissioner Peirce voted against. And, you know, she issued a dissenting statement where she said, as sort of kind of what you're saying, she's worried that the proposal would expand the reach of the custody requirements to crypto assets while likely shrinking the ranks of qualified crypto custodians, right? I think that's a lot of what you're getting at. But I mean, I guess I'm wondering, you're, you're probably in, in Hester's camp, but is there, is there a version of this rule that could work? Yes, uh, I, I think it will look very different from the rule that's proposed. But I think recognizing what this rule really needs to do is it really needs to dig into what the state of the art of crypto of digital asset custody is, right? And I, I'm not sure, but it doesn't seem like the SEC engaged with the state of the art digital asset custodians in writing the parameters of this proposed rule. Because I feel like if they had, then what the rule would point to is, or what the rule ought to do is create a class of qualified custodians that, that follows the parameters of the best in class that we have today, right? If we're, if we're trying to get to the policy outcome of let's ensure that digital assets have a place to be held by qualified custodians, well, let's look at the best custodians of digital assets and create a rule that supports their ability to custody assets. But instead, what we have, right, is we've basically got a rule that by all intents and purposes, it seems, basically says, look, if you can't reduce digital assets to custody, then you ought not advise your clients to invest in digital assets, which feels both asinine and anti-American, right? Like we shouldn't be telling people what they can and cannot invest in, right? We should be creating fair marketplaces and appropriate impartial pr processes to allow people to invest in things according to what they want to invest in. Joshua, you are a guy well-read and with strong opinions about this, this custody rule. If you were to you know, talk to somebody at a cocktail party or a bar and they were also had some strong opinions or were well-read in this area, what would you advise them to do, noting that we're still in the comment period here for this proposed change? Yeah, people generally avoid me at cocktail parties, so I, you know, I have to really like get into character for that. But, you know, look, we're in the comment period right now. Actually, as far as I have last checked... I don't believe this has been entered into the federal register yet. I'm happy to be corrected on that. And, and maybe by the time people listen to this, that will have changed. But once this is entered into the federal register, then there's a period of 60 days to comment. And yeah, I would encourage other... Thank you for saying that, by the way. This is the nicest thing, Chris, anyone's ever said to me. 
So we're uh, trading love here, Josh, well, between you and accountants. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I would say, look, like it's imperative that, that the, you know, the, the, the APA outlines a process for rulemaking. And part of that process is a period of public notice and comment whereby the public and the industry can engage with regulators to indicate the, you know, potential oversights or shortcomings of a proposed rule you know, the potential negative impacts to the industry of that rule. And so, yeah, I would encourage people to write comment letters. We'll be signing a number of them and, and writing one ourselves. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the question really has to be, are we going to create regulatory infrastructure that will allow the industry to move forward? Because the answer can't simply be, hey, I'm sorry, the, the, the risk of regulatory compliance in investing in this, in this asset is just too high, so you cannot invest in it, right? You know, we're not talking about like, you know, uranium or like, you know, automatic web, right? That's, so we're not talking about like, you know, things that pose, you know, insane public risks. We're talking about, you know, a, an ecosystem that yes, is a burgeoning ecosystem. You know, valuations and markets are still trying to understand how to approach it. But these are things that people ought to be able to have the opportunity to invest in. And our regulations need to provide a path for that. I can't think of a better way to end it, Joshua, but if you have more hopeful thoughts for our listeners regarding our exit from the crypto winter into the crypto spring, I don't know. Are we going to keep this, Kurt? I don't, what's the, the legalese here we're going to talk about the next phase here? I don't know. Maybe maybe we're entering into late January of crypto winter. I don't know. We'll see. Some no, shoveling to do, but we're in the new year. I, I'll, I'll tell people that I always tell people, look, you know, it's crypto winter for sure. That, you know, that will change with market cycles. We're in a kind of a, a a dark regulatory place, and you know part of part of what I hope to accomplish is you know encourage collaboration between policymakers and the industry and regulators in the industry. But I think that regulation usually follows innovation, and one thing that makes me continually excited to be in the space is just seeing the caliber of entrepreneur enter the space. They're so excited, they're so passionate. This technology isn't going to be uninvented. It's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to get better. There will be challenges and, and stumbles and mistakes. Things will break. But we're very hopeful that progress will continue to be made in the industry. So hopefully someday that will, you know, result in a, in a more reasonable regulatory approach. Yeah, it's a great way to sum it up. Maybe, we may be in dark days, but at least we ended on a bright note. Joshua, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It's been a really good conversation and I know the listeners are going to love it. Thank you both for having me. It was great. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Joshua Rivera of Blockchain Capital. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. And I'm at enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. 
In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.